Hello and welcome to the London Magazine podcast episode 3. This month we'll be talking to Dr Matthew Green, author of London, A Travel Guide Through Time. Now, as the London Magazine was first published in 1732, amid a boom of magazine publishing that centred around the coffee houses of 18th century London, we thought we'd begin the discussion by asking Matthew a little bit about that. Here's what he had to say. Yeah, well, if you were uh, walking through London in the 18th century, and say you went to St Paul's Cathedral, uh, directly opposite that, there would be a place called the Chapter Coffee House, uh, which originally was a kind of clerical name, but it evolved um, to kind of provide an appropriate name for all the kind of writers and publishers who would kind of gather there. Um, and this was one of about 3,000 coffee houses, which were all over the city. Um, and they were kind of literary, convivial hubs. So you wouldn't just go in there and, you know, sit on your own and talk to your friends. You were, you were going there to actively kind of make connections, to find out the news, to exchange ideas. And, um, and also, um, most pertinently for this, to, to write stuff. Um, and they were kind of forums uh, of literary judgment. So there was another one called Buttons in Covent Garden. Uh, which actually had a kind of like lion wizard head on the wall, and new writers were invited to kind of feed the, the lion wizard with um, you know, letters, limerick stories, and the very best of these would be kind of, as the editor Addison put it, would be roared out in a special weekly edition of what was then the Guardian newspaper. So there was this kind of direct link, uh, but it wasn't just the writing that went on there, that's also where people consumed um, literature. And, you know, when we read... Well, I don't know about you, but in general, people reading is quite a solitary process. Like you might read it in the same room as someone else, but you don't normally read stuff together. But in the coffee house, it would be read out and sometimes kind of sung out. Um, it was much more of a inclusive activity, and that also meant that it sort of smashed through literacy barriers as well, because you, you, know, you don't have to be literate to hear someone read out a Samuel Johnson essay. Um, so it's so the bitter Mohammedan gruel, as they called it, the coffee really was the kind of jet fuel for this upsurge in publishing that happens uh, right at the end of the 17th century. Amazing. Um, do you think, what do you think in, in particular uh, coffee perhaps as a, as a substance, how, how that kind of influenced the, the burgeoning publishing movement in, in London at, the, at that time? Mm. Um, and, and do you think maybe the kind of London being a, a place of, of trade influenced that and was the reason why, say, the publishing industry kind of really began kicking off? Or, or were there other centres, do you think? Mm. Well, Fleet Street uh, was, I think it's going all the way back to the 15th century. Um, it was a kind of thoroughfare of information um, and print. The, the first um, kind of... Well, the, the second Englishman to set up a printing shop was called Vincen de Word. It wasn't, that sounds a bit opportunistic, it was actually <laughs> Vincen de Wurter. Right. But they, they just, the English just changed it to Word because it yeah. was more appropriate. He set up uh, a printing house uh, in St Bride's Churchyard off Fleet Street at the sign of uh, this wiry sun. Mm. Um, which, so he was the progenitor of that idea linking, you know, the printed word to knowledge and enlightenment. Mm. Um, and that triggered a print house boom. Uh, and the reason he selected Fleet Street was because it was almost equidistant between the courts and the city, so mm. the political hub and the turbine of wealth. It was also the resort of clergymen and lawyers who were more literary, so not more, maybe they were more literate 
than uh, the population at large. So that established a tradition. But yes, you also had them clustered around um, St Paul's Churchyard. In Shakespeare's day, if you walked into St Paul's Churchyard, you would have seen about a hundred fantastical signs, like kind of golden dragons and serpents and mm. wolves and owls and things. And that's where you would have gone to buy um, you know, plays and, and, and kind of you know, little broadside ballads. And before that, before print, that was where you'd go to actually get sort of manuscripts as well. Yeah. Um, but Fleet Street really becomes cemented with the lapsing of, of what was called pre-publication censorship in 1695. Yeah. No one thought it would be permanent. Um, it happened almost by accident. There was no great epiphany about the freedom of the press. But there was this kind of volcanic eruption of print. Mm. Uh, there were about 20 newspapers being published each week. Wow. by Yeah, by 1715, I think that was. And the, the total circulation was about 100,000. Um, but each copy of something like the London Magazine would have been absorbed by up to 20 people. Yeah. You know? because it was shared out in coffee houses and stuff. Mm. So, so that, that sort of second boom is layered upon the first one. And, you know, to this day, Fleet Street, it, it's still a metonym for the press, even though there's not a single newspaper that lives there. So, yeah. so from Wink and the Word in 1495, <laughs> all the way through to kind of Maxwell and Lord Northcliffe and Rupert Murdoch, there's a kind of direct link. The other thing I should say, you mentioned coffee. It was renowned as a thoroughfare of drunkenness. Oh, really? Um, yeah, because yeah, it lay outside the city walls and outside the, the, sure. the court. So um, there was a, a higher preponderance of taverns and there was a poem that's, you know, that tippling street distinguished by the name of Fleet, mm. um, etc. Um, so the coffee sobered people up. Yeah. Because until coffee arrived, in, which was 1652, most people were slightly or very drunk mm. all day long because you couldn't drink the water. People were drinking up to eight pints of beer and similar quantities of delicious rosé wine from Gascony. So, so, right. so this stuff sobered people up and gave them little windows of sobriety, mm. um, which fueled lots of things like the stock exchange and various political developments. But mm. the press and, and the idea that the public had a right to an opinion, not just in politics, but on literary journals yeah. as well. So it was flattering and it made them think their opinions mattered when their opinions didn't, didn't really matter. Yeah, it's, it's interesting... Um what you were saying there about the the origins of, of literary and arts journals being um, not only a place for new works but also for for opinions mm. and and it's uh, it's kind of something that we try and keep with the London magazine we, we publish a lot of a lot of essays and in general magazines do that and I think it's quite amazing that this form of the magazine mm. has kind of endured over yeah. say 300 years mm. um, much in the way as the, the model for this, the stock market that also came out of the coffee house has as well. Yeah, um, and insurance and yeah, the, um, but, auctioneering all the rest of it. Yeah, but don't, don't you think it's bizarre that the... Um, I mean, we, we probably think of the, the art world, the literary arts world and the, the finance world as being mm. quite opposed, but that they come out of the same same area yeah for sure um, there was overlap and, and there was a, such a cross fertilization of ideas and you know people would quite happily go to about seven different coffee houses every day mm. uh, so you, I mean, you might be a stockbroker in Jonathan's and, and then you might go and like delve into the yeah. um, the more literary ones and and the magazine as a as a form is, is really interesting because the you know the, the newspaper as we know it was really something that came about at the early 
stages of the 18th century. So the, the first daily newspaper in the world was called the Daily Coronet, and that was 1702. Mm. Um, then you have things that are more magazine-y, like the Spectator and the Tatler, which mm. was structured around a kind of moralistic essay, which often took the form of a walk through London with various kind of transgressions. Yeah. Um, but they began to compile content you know, from, from other places, as did all the papers. They simply ripped off the European press, generally. There was no kind of mm. plagiarism. Uh, it wasn't seen as a bad thing in those days. But then, yeah, the, the magazine kind of, not ossifies, because it, it's, it's still evolving, as you're saying, even to this day, but yeah. it, it crystallises, you know, round about the time when Dr. Johnson was, you know, being hounded by the bailiffs, mm. and trying to finish his dictionary, and, yeah. and, and he, he was a hack. He said, you know, only a blockhead i.e. an idiot, would write if not for money. So this idea of the, the sort of starving writer living in a garret, you know, a bit like myself, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, a lot of what you've just spoken about, you, you, um, you touch on in, in your, your brilliant book, London, A Travel Guide Through Time, which I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about kind of how that book came about mm. and... Um, your sort of your other work around the history of London in general. Sure, yeah. Um, well, it was unusual in a sense because it wasn't my idea to write that. Mm. Uh, it was uh, Penguin came up with a title. It was actually meant to be called The Time Traveller's Guide to London, but there was a, a threatened lawsuit because it turned out that had actually been patented by someone else. Oh, really? You thought they might have looked that up, but anyway. Um, and I was doing immersive historical tours of London, so there's a, I take people out on like 18th century coffee house tours, medieval wine tours, where you explore you know, the old vineyards in the city. Um, and I'd been doing a bit of journalism on the back of that. Mm. So they, they, they rounded up, I guess, about 10 unknown writers, and yeah. we all had to write four pages, just four, literally four pages. And they said the best four pages... We'll, we'll then get the, have the privilege of spending an incredibly short amount of time writing this very long book. Um, mm. So I then I, I knew a lot about the 18th century because that's what my PhD was in history of the media. Um, but I had to get to grips, you know, with medieval London and Victorian London. So it was kind of a race against time. Um, mm. So I decided to structure it, you know, as the form of a tour. So you're actually physically present in the past. Uh, and it's written in the second person, mm. you know, which sounds maybe like it's a bit invasive, but hopefully it works. You know, like mm. You're walking down the street, you, you can hear the growls from the bear pit, someone approaches you with a dish of Nicotian weed, etc. Mm. Um, so that was a way through it, you know, grappling hooks to, to kind of pull myself through the whole thing. Because you know, I, I used to work in the London Library, and just the shelf, there's, there's a whole room which is basically just the history of London, and it used to give me mm. panic attacks. I was like, how the hell am I going to distill all of this? But doing it yeah. as a walk kind of helped and you know and that's a bit like the as I was saying the, the London Spy was a, another amazing uh, magazine type thing from 1702 and that always took the form of the war so there were kind of precedents for it um, and then yeah I've, I've, I've converted some of it into television and radio and um, and talks and podcasts like yeah this. yeah <laughs> um, well I think I think the way that the the book is written I mean I've read like a lot of people, I've read quite a lot of books about London history and, and countercultural history and mm. that sort of thing. So I kind of, for example, things like the, the Elizabethan bear pits mm. um, that you talk about, I had read things about that before, but there's something about, I think, about the way that you describe it in this second-person journey as a time-traveller that makes everything really vivid and 
I thought it was very, very well done. Great. Thank you. Well, that, that's exactly what I was intending. Yeah, to make it more... Mm. I mean, because there's something... You know, if, if you say London Bridge had 80 houses on it, that's kind of boring. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, maybe it's not boring, but, but if you're actually, you know, you're, you're, you're walking beneath, you know, there's this mansion and, and you know, there's people brushing past you and there's a flock of geese ahead of you and you can mm. see the kites. If you actually sort of put the reader into it, then it, I think it's just a bit more transportive, yeah, I guess. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um... So I'm, uh, I'm very much looking forward to your next book, which I saw you give a talk about at uh, the Port Elliot Festival in the, in the Idler tent. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about your forthcoming book. Yeah, um, it's called uh, The City That Fell Off the Cliff, and it's a tour um, of Britain's Lost Cities, Ghost Towns and Vanished Villages. So it's similar to the first book in the sense that, you know, it's exploring vanished or vanishing worlds. Um, but I've been to some of the most recherche corners of the, of, of the landmass that, that we call our country. Places like St Kilda, um, I'm going to the, the kind of Shetney, Shetland Islands uh, in, in a couple of weeks. Um, and I've been finding these amazing underwater cities, that's Dunwich, that was kind of clawed off a cliff in in great part in the 14th century. Um, Creepy kind of towns that were drowned beneath Welsh reservoirs, villages that were annihilated by the Black Death, the remains of which have have surfaced in the drought recently, actually. They look like the kind of doodlings of giants just kind of etched into the grass. Um, And places that we don't really think about but are familiar to us nonetheless, like Heathrow, it was once a village with a row of heaths and that was flattened. Yeah, 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 for the airport. Yeah, that's a kind of a killer fact, hopefully. Um, And I've I've actually just got back from Wales where I met a man who noticed one day that the moles in his fields were digging up shards of medieval pottery and he he basically spent his life savings on that field, convinced that a, a sprawling medieval city lay beneath. Uh, and it looks like he's he's right. So there's, there's some nice kind of contemporary like angles to it as well. Yeah, was that because uh, I when uh, when I originally messaged you on Twitter to try and set up this interview, you uh, you replied to me with one of the most amazing replies to, to a message on Twitter. <laughs> oh, is that what I said? <laughs> saying that um, I'll get back to you after the weekend. I'm about to cycle. Through a, through a Welsh forest in search of a medieval city. That's true, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad you appreciated that. Um, yeah, that was, that's exactly what I did. It was the Forest of Dean. Um, okay. Do you know it? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I didn't, I mean, I, I, I got an inkling that I was ill-equipped because I mentioned to the landlady of the Airbnb, like, oh, I'm just going to cycle down to try and find Trelec and... And she was like, oh, you're not going to be cycling down anyway, you're going to be going up. And it was like the steepest yeah. forest, and it was about kind of 18 miles. Mm. Um, and I got there, and, and yeah, it was there. It shrunk to a tiny village. Yeah. And then there's this sense of emasculation that kind of flows through. You can feel that it was once much kind of grander. Mm. Um, but it was kind of an idyllic day. I, I got mm. there, I had a pint of cider, I found a wishing well. Um, maybe it was a wicked well, I don't really know. And then, and then the journey back was easier because it was... Sort of downhill. Yeah. Took lots of nice pictures, some of which will be in the book. Yeah, because I, I remember you were saying in the talk that a lot of these um, settlements at one point, or some of them at least, would have been 
would have been on the scale of, say, medieval London at the same time. Yeah, the same um, physical size mm. as medieval London. I mean, medieval London at its peak was 80,000. Right. You know, that, that's huge. And yeah. the, the next biggest one was Norwich, only had about 5,000. Oh, okay. Um, so in terms of, like, a square mile of built-up mm. um, places, yes, like Winchelsea, uh, definitely Dunwich, they, they were all mm. the same physical size. And the point is, they had the potential to, to grow bigger and denser. And, you know, if, if Dunwich hadn't been clawed off the cliff by the sea, you, mm. we might be doing this interview there now, you know, because right. it was advantageously located for trade with Scandinavia and, and so on. Um, so, yes, yeah, some of them were vast. And, and I think it conjures up a sort of exotic image of, like, lost that you think of kind of Egyptian cities kind of fluttering to the ocean floor and mm. play, far off play. But to actually sort of say, well, there's, you know, the, the country that we live in is peppered with them. And then you've got a chilling kind of global warming subtext, like places like we're familiar with might well be underwater mm. quite soon. Mm. Or in the, I'm, I'm doing a thing about a Nazi village in Norfolk at the moment, okay. which they put there, like in the war, to train the troops who were going to fight you know, in, in Europe. And yeah. it transmogrified then into a Northern Irish village, then a Bosnian village, mm. and most recently an Af- Afghani village. So right. it's always the enemy of the day. But that was uh, a product of the military just announced they were going to take over a fifth of the landmass of Britain. You know, something like that could happen again. So, yeah. you know, we, we, what we think of as permanent is not necessarily, yeah. and, and that was like a kind of toxic ink blot that kind of hollowed out all these places, uh, and now they're kind of ghost villages. So it's very hard to get into yeah. them. You treat it with the utmost suspicion. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I very much look forward to reading your next book. Um, Dr Matthew Green, thank you very much for coming in and talking to the London Magazine today. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thank you very much to Dr Matthew Green for joining us for this month's London Magazine podcast. Next up we have our October-November issue coming up very soon. But other than that, thank you for listening.